Excel Pro. So the standard for when you've infringed a copyright can be really hard to predict. You're probably thinking when you talk about literal copying, that's easy. I mean, if someone takes the whole thing, that's easy. But in fact, there are times when the copyright law under fair use doctrine or other similar doctrines, or actually some other different doctrines, will allow the making of 100% identical copies under some circumstances. And let me explain for a second why that's important. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide expert interviews and coaching to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerlier. Today we're talking about copyright and transformative use with Professor Ann Bartow. This is part one of two episodes with Ann. Bartow is a professor whose work focuses on the intersection between intellectual property law and public policy concerns, privacy and technology law, and feminist legal theory. Part one, Barto discusses intellectual property law, copyright infringement, Campbell versus Acuff Rose, Weird Al Yankovic, and questions of parody versus satire. Barto is especially interested in the long-term consequences of Campbell versus Acuff Rose and how rap group Two Life Crew's version of Oh Pretty Woman became an important pivot point for musicians making creative works. Excel Pro's expert interviews and coaching accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve your day-to-day job performance and make your career goals achievable. For a transcript of this episode, and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP Law community, visit joinaccelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now, Ann Bardo. Thanks, Anne. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your areas of specialty? Sure. My areas of specialty are primarily intellectual property law. And then one thing that makes me a little bit unique is I sometimes take a feminist legal theory kind of twist to intellectual property law. I also study contiguous areas like privacy law, which privacy law doesn't maybe have a natural overlap with intellectual property law on the surface. But in fact, what happens in intellectual property law is that the law actually propertizes things, right? Ideas, concepts, intangible things. And it turns out that's a lot of what's going on in privacy law, that people are trying to propertize privacy or figure out a legal approach that gives them sort of rights in their own information or rights in their own right to be alone. And uh, comparing it to property, like intellectual property, is one of the routes that some privacy law scholars have taken. And we'll come back to that later. But from your perspective, what is the standard for assessing infringement of works with limited creativity and thin copyrights against virtually identical copying? Wow, that's a fantastic question. So when we talk about copyright infringement, there are really multiple kinds of copyright infringement that you want to really start out when you analyze any dispute by categorizing it. So the most obvious kind of copyright infringement is literal copying, right? Like you have an 800-page book, someone gets with a photocopy or a scanner or a camera, and now they have the identical copy of your 800-page book. That's literal copying. A very different thing happens when someone takes your book and does something different with it that takes your characters, maybe your basic plot and your setting, and twists it around a little. And then we would say if it is substantially similar to the original work, there might be a copyright infringement. 
A third category is something we call derivative works. And then if you infringe, you'll be making an unauthorized derivative work. The difference between a derivative work issue and a substantial similarity issue can sometimes be hard to pinpoint. I generally like to think of it as if you take a book and make another book, that's usually a substantial similarity issue, although it could be a derivative works issue. If you take a book and make an unauthorized movie, which is very different because when you take a book to a movie, you have to change, you have to add, you have to subtract, you do things differently. That's potentially copyright infringement by being an unauthorized derivative work. And then even within those broad categories, there can be some subcategories, like sometimes something will come up where parts of something are taken literally, but other parts are left. And sometimes that's called fragmented literal similarity. uh, And we ask whether something is taken too much. So the standard for when you've infringed a copyright can be really hard to predict. You're probably thinking when you talk about literal copying, that's easy. I mean, if someone thinks the whole thing, that's easy. But in fact, there are times when the copyright law under fair use doctrine or other similar doctrines or actually some other different doctrines will allow the making of 100% identical copies under some circumstances. And let me explain for a second why that's important. We live in a society where we just don't know what's coming down the pike. We know that there's Ukraine and Russia. We know the Middle East, there's armed stuff. As soon as you have people in dire situations because of a war, some kind of armed conflict, protecting art and cultural antiquities is just generally usually not a priority for most people, right? You have basic things, safety, food, shelter, maybe having to leave an area. People aren't thinking about the art or the cultural property. So one of the things that copyright law over time has evolved to try to do is come up with doctrines, for example, the doctrine of moral rights, where people try to convince other people, convince the citizenry, that in fact, destruction of art or destruction of antiquities, whether it's a consequence of war or any other reason, is a really bad idea. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But at the end of the day, your best defense, whether you have an armed conflict or something just like a flood or a fire is to have backup copies. We do not want the only copy of one book to be in a library in New Orleans that got flooded during the hurricane. We don't want it to be in the Yale library when there's a fire or a flood. We want multiple copies. So to the extent that cultural works contain things that we want to preserve, backup copies for libraries, backup copies for anybody. There was a time when if you bought a computer, you had software for your computer, you could make a backup copy. The software would let you. And it was really handy. Things got lost. You had a spare for various reasons. It was really handy. And people did perfectly legitimate, non-infringing things with backup copies. And the move toward the inability to purchase software, where now all you can do is license, has really given consumers a lot fewer options. And it's been justified as a way to protect copyrights. What are the main differences between fair use and fair dealing in copyright law and jurisdictions outside the U.S.? And in the United States, for our listeners here, are there any equivalents domestically? Fair dealing is more associated with Canada generally. That's uh, the term they use. And they do take a slightly different approach. In the United States, fair use has really seen a lot of fairly dramatic shifts. It's around 1996. The Supreme Court in the late 90s really made a turn toward endorsing the freedom of the relatively newcomers to doing things that are transformative. In this part of the interview, Bartow walks us through Campbell versus Acuff Rose, a pivotal Supreme Court case for popular music. 
In the case, a music publishing company, Acuff Rose Music, claimed rapper's two live crews song Pretty Woman infringed on Acuff Rose's copyright for Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman. The case established that a commercial parody can qualify as fair use. So the particular case where this came up was actually a music case in which two live crew performed a song. It was Roy Orbison. It's a Supreme Court case from 1996 called Campbell versus Akif Rose. Akif Rose was a music publisher. Campbell was a performer in the rap slash hip hop group Two Live Crew. So what happened was Roy Orbison fairly famously performed a song called Pretty Woman. He was a co-author and Akif Rose, the publisher, held the publishing rights. I'm not a huge Roy Orbison fan, although I can do a pretty good Roy Orbison impression. He's very distinctive and he's very popular. People like his work. A very popular, very distinctive voice. And he does Oh Pretty Woman in a very distinctive way when he has mercy. <laughs> I like to hit that when I'm playing the song for my students. Two Live Crew, really creative act, decided that they would like to do their own sort of rap version of the song. And so they asked Akifrose for permission. They were willing to pay and license the song. And as my understanding is, Akifrose said no. And they didn't just say no, but they said no with a certain cultural flavor <laughs> that wasn't taken too well by Two Life Crew. And they said, you know what? They talked to their lawyers and they thought, we're going to make this song anyway. We're going to take the kind of bit parts of a Pretty Woman. We'll take a little bit of the melody, we'll take the title, but we're going to make it our song. Not just a hip-hop version of Pretty Woman, but our different lyrics, different meaning, different everything. And so they went ahead and they did. And then they got sued, not surprisingly. And because Two Live Crew was associated with hip-hop, and at that moment in history, a lot of the criticism, which was couched as, well, we are infringing copyright, was really straight-up racism, or really poorly disguised, too. And I thought there's this great clip. C-SPAN did this interview right around the time this was going to the Supreme Court and interviewed the guys from Two Live Crew, and there's like, they're acting like we've done something disgusting or contaminating their song. All we did was make our own version. All we want to do is sing. We're musicians too. Like, what in the, how do we become like a public enemy? Why is this a crime? Like, why are we going to the Supreme Court to justify our right to sing? So, sing this song. So, it's a, it's pretty good if you've got it. I'd love to have my students get that history because there's no way I can recapture them talking about their song and what it's like for rappers to make this choice and then have to defend that choice of the Supreme Court for goodness sake. Now, when the opinion was written, it was written by Justice Souter, who's actually my neighbor here in New Hampshire. I don't see him a lot. <laughs> There's probably security making sure of that. But he actually does just live fairly close to here because he's famously from New Hampshire. And he wrote an opinion that really embraced a doctrine of transformative use. And the idea behind transformative use is that if you take someone else writes a song, like Roy Everson wrote Pretty Woman, very distinctive song, you like it or you don't. When Two Live Crew came out with their version of Pretty Woman, which is rap, different lyrics, and just a completely different song, they do not compete. You will never convince me that somebody wants Roy Orbison, gets Two Live Crew by accident, goes, oh, no one will notice the difference. <laughs> They're completely different. Or vice versa, if you want Two Live Crew, and that would be my preference, I would rather listen to that song. Then, you know, you're not going to think that Roy Orbison substitutes at all. One of the weird things about the case, so the case straight up ignores transformative use, and that was huge. And I'm in favor of it. And there are some people in favor of strong copyright because they think the original creators need to have strong protections. I understand that view. But I like a world where you have weaker copyright protections if it doesn't hurt anybody, right? Like, Roy Harbison didn't lose a single sale to two live crews. So if that's the case, I don't understand why we don't want as many songs as possible. Two Life Crew wants to do a version. If someone wants to do a country western version, if somebody wants to do a chanting version, 
To me, that's the goal of copyright. I see copyright as incentivizing new works. I see that as the prime directive and the most important job of copyright. So I loved the macro takeaway from this case of transformative use. But here's where it got a little weird. They decided that they needed to categorize the work as either a parody or a satire. And that is a satire, it had a weaker claim for fair use, but if it was a parody, it had a stronger claim for fair use. And so that was different. And the idea behind it was questionable. It's not really easy to adapt. And I think the strangest thing about it is if when you think about parody music, I don't know who comes to your mind, but I have unsaid it. When he was a kid, he idolized Weird Al Yankovic. Poodle Hat City, I will never forget. I, I knew at one time every word to Poodle. I cannot escape Poodle Hat City. My son and my friends absolutely adored it. Only child, I decided to indulge him a little. And I got tickets to a Weird Al Yankovic concert. And I thought to myself, I'm a really good mother because I was not at all optimistic about my concert experience. But I was complaining to a friend of mine who teaches at Toledo, by the way, another law professor named Lou Gibbons. And I said, oh, I'm taking Casey to a see Weird Al. So they wear earbuds or whatever. He's like, Weird Al is cool. You're going to love it. And he was totally right. Weird Al is a freaking genius, okay? His song parodies are not my favorite work, but he's actually written a lot of straight-up songs that you don't know he's the author that other people perform. And in his concert, he performed some of them. So I was wowed by his skill as composer. And then the other things I couldn't get over is most of the audience was not teenage boys, as I expected, but adults just like me. They knew every word to Poodle Hat City also. And uh, really, it was like nice, friendly people audience, kind of audience that has to get home by eight and let the dog know my kind of audience. But I had one of the best times ever. And during the intermission, Weird Al is amazing. Instruments, costume changes. It was a fantastic show. You should see him if you ever get the chance. But during an intermission, he played a video in which he talked about copyright law. So then my son's friends were like, maybe you can help Weird Al. I was like, I would love to help Weird Al because here's Weird Al's problem. Okay. After Campbell versus Atha Rose, Weird Al, under the law, as the Supreme Court explained it, should be able to parody any song he wants and get a record deal and have it nationally broadcast. If he wants to Michael Jackson's Beat It, he did famously Eat It, the parody of that. He had to license that. He had to get Michael Jackson's people or whoever held the copyright to give him permission to do Eat It. And my guess is that he may have had to make concessions. Like if there was anything in that draft, he may have had to change. So again, I don't know who was calling the shots, whether it was Michael Jackson and his people. I have no idea who that was. But he just said in the video, he's like, I want to be, I want to parody anybody I want, and copyright law stands in my way. And in his smart, he knew what he was talking about, but he was just trying to explain to an audience of other than me, non-copyright lawyers. But the truth is, the law under Afka Rose gave him freedom within limits to do a parody of any song he wanted. But the music companies just told him, we are not releasing this album, we are not distributing this album unless you get permission. Because we don't want to get sued and have an expensive case, even though we know you're going to win. Like, even though it looks totally great and your lawyer's old and we promise you, and ultimately you win, we still don't want to deal with the time, the mess. Frankly, the lawyers are lovely people, but pay them a lot of money. And copyright law has a huge impact on an artist like Weird Al. He's an obvious case because we associate him with song parodies. So getting back to Two Live Crew, the Supreme Court decided that their version of Oh Pretty Woman was a parody. And to me, that doesn't compute. Now they needed, under the analysis they set up, it had to be a parody and it couldn't be satire. 
colloquially, I would have characterized it as satire because that's just the way I thought of satire. The way the court explained it was if you make a song and the song is making fun of the song, that's parody and that's okay. But if you take someone else's song and you make fun of a third thing, like some kind of social commentary, that's satire and that's a little less likely to be fair use and less likely to be okay. Now, when I listen to Two Life Crew's version or read the lyrics, to me, they're making social commentary that's broader. But it works just as well to say they were making fun of Roy Orbison because that what's got them the win, right? If they're literally just making fun of the song and Roy Orbison and, and white men who purport to put women on a pedestal but secretly are sexist and gross, if that was the point of the song, and they won, right? So they won if that was a thing. And actually, it's funny because Orbison Pivot comes out looking less well if it's a parody versus a satire. But at the end of the day, what the case really does at a macro level is show you the conflict between copyright law and free speech. Because if you want to make fun of Roy Orbison, you ought to be able to do it in text, in a podcast like I'm doing now. No offense. Again, I know many people are big fans. But if you want to make fun of Roy Orbison, whether it's textual or whether you just write a song kind of mocking his song, at least under Act of Rose, that's okay. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for listening to our conversation about Campbell versus Acuff Rose and how Two Life Crew helped establish that a commercial parody can qualify as fair use. Join us for our next episode, part two, where we continue our conversation with Ann Bartow and discuss more about how fair use plays out in books, music, and other forms of pop culture, as well as Bartow's past academia and copyright law. For a transcript of this conversation, and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com. Thanks again to today's guests. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-EXCEL. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Tuela Kulkarni, Kaylin Cole, Jared Goff, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Angelaider. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.